You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And in that text, it said that John the Baptist came, and he wasn't the light, but he bore witness to the light. And while he was bearing witness to the light, he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he was bearing witness to the light. And when he said those things, it says this, and the crowds asked him, the crowds asked John the Baptist, what then shall we do? And John answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Can you even imagine if the iron... And then soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. We're starting a series called Don't Forget to Pack, Starting Strong to Finish Well. How many people love going on vacation? How many people love packing the car the morning of going on vacation? Karina, you're overachieving. Grady, you're a liar. When, like, if I, when I do marriage counseling and people are like, how do we know if we have a healthy marriage? I say, pack the car. Get up early and pack the car and try to leave on time. And if you can do that and you're still married, God is in your midst and you're doing very well. A few, a few years ago, we went to Ocean City. It was raining in the morning when we left. We were all like in that like doofy good mood, like this is going to be so cozy driving down in the rain with our coffee and we're going to listen to music and podcasts and we were all into it and then we packed the car and Jacqueline said, did you lock the front door of the house? And I said, did you? Which means no, uh, I didn't. (laughs) And so I went to do it and I realized it didn't have my keys and I realized when I went to put the first suitcase in the car, I tossed my keys in there, packed the whole car really well, because I was in a good mood at the time. Now it's raining. My keys are in the trunk all the way in the back, and I go to get out of the car, forgetting the car was in reverse. The door hit my shin, 
I sat in it for a minute and contemplated just sending my family to vacation, and I'll stay home and make sure nobody breaks in since the door's not locked. Like, this idea of packing. So Ian originally gave me a title picture of a trunk filled with stuff, and I was like, I'm having flashbacks. I can't look at that for four weeks. So we picked a picture of packing that I assume is what it looks like when Karina Schultz packs or something like that. Like, like just makes everybody else kind of feel like garbage about themselves, but at least she's organized, you know? So don't forget to pack. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be packing four items that are going to lead us into 2022. And those items are a mirror, everybody's favorite thing, an empty suitcase, a serving bowl, and a 2023 calendar. These are the four things we're going to pack. And today, we're going to pack a mirror. Why? Because on this journey of having a successful year where we will finish well when it's over, we need to have healthy self-awareness. Write that down. Healthy self-awareness. Some of the most dangerous people on this earth it doesn't matter if they're a good person or a bad person. A self-unaware person is a dangerous person. A person who's creating harm and has no idea about what they're saying, how they're joking, the words that are coming out of their mouth, the expression on their face, the way they're carrying their body. When we don't know about these things, we are self-unaware and we become quite dangerous. It's important to be self-aware. And I remember one of one of my very, it was probably like the second time I ever spoke in this church. It was downstairs at youth group. And we, we did this analogy with mirrors. And the whole concept was what, is, what mirror is easiest to look at? One that is exactly reflecting of who you are or a mirror that's broken and shattered. And the sermon was about how it's so much easier to look into a broken mirror. Because all the blemishes you see, you could blame on the broken mirror. But when you look into a mirror that's perfect and you see blemishes, it's just you. It's not the mirror. And so we, this is a dangerous game, but we, if we're going to lead the world in what it means to be good and what it means to be moral and what it means to be ethical and what it means to be spirit-filled and Christian, we cannot do it if we are not self-aware people. We have to be aware of ourselves, and we have to live at the ready to change course. One of the things it says in James 3 when it talks about the wisdom that comes from above, and this is underlined in every one of my Bibles that I've ever owned. This is underlined, and I've never gotten this right in my entire life. This year I decided I'm not going to underline it, and then maybe I'll get it right. But it says, wisdom is open to reason. Isn't that kind of hilarious? Like, honestly, as... As Americans, open to reason, none of us are. We're open to reasons to confirm what we already think, but we're not open to reason in the sense that some of my deepest held beliefs could change if I'm actually open to reason and I hear something more true. Oh, man, it's going to be a long sermon, Salem. I hope, I hope at home you're shaking the house with amens because they're not. And it's going to be a long one for them. Pray for them at home. Send prayers, as we say online. I'm sending you prayers and love. Send them. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness refused to accept it because it doesn't want to be self-aware. John bore witness to the light. 
We need help being self-aware. Number one, you cannot be self-aware because you decided to be. Listen, you can stare at me the whole service. I'm over it now. You cannot be self-aware. I just got over it just now. So now I'm, I'm going to have fun and whatever. You can do whatever you want. You need help being self-aware. I cannot be self-aware because I decided to. I'm not free enough in my will to be self-aware. My will is so bound and so not free that I'm going to be you aware, but I'm not going to be self-aware. I'm going to be very aware of what you're all doing that annoy me, like not amening. And then I'm not going to be self-aware, like maybe I should just shut up about it and preach. Like that's how this is happening, right? Like I'm going to be very you aware, but I'm not going to be too self-aware. John bore witness to the light before Jesus came because we need help. And this is the worst part. Someone has to be able to speak into your life and help you be self-aware. And if you're not self-aware initially, that's going to be a very aggravating person to you. But Jesus sent them. I don't care who they are. If they're causing you to actually have to take a look at yourself, Jesus sent them. I don't care if they're filled with the Holy Spirit or not. There are some very unholy people that I met out in Walmart on Christmas Eve when I decided to go there. And Jesus sent every single one of them to show me how I'm not prepared for Christmas in my heart. And nothing against you if you shop at Walmart. Or maybe you were one of those people and you annoyed me. I don't remember seeing you. Some came to be baptized by John and John said, why are you, why are you here? You're not going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he didn't let people just do the right thing if he knew they weren't going to be self-aware. There's no point in being baptized if you're not ready to go down into that water and say, Lord, what in me needs to be transformed? I'm going to say this again a little bit later in the sermon, but we are a culture that lusts to be informed and doesn't want to be transformed. We have an insatiable appetite to be informed and to be more informed than the next person we're going to talk to, but none of us wants to be transformed. And Jesus does not care how informed we are because all of that information in an untransformed heart is only going to do damage to the world, period. We need to be transformed. Some came and said, baptize me. And John said, no. Some came and said, what shall we do? And John says, let me baptize you. Because it's that openness to reason. It's that self-aware openness to reason that opens your life to God's life. And you'll eventually be able to see yourself as you really are because you're open to seeing Jesus as he really is. And you can come out from hiding behind the trees. You understood what that meant if you read your Bible reading plan today, day two. What shall we do? Self-awareness in three, I had a page of areas where I feel like we're not self-aware. And I wanted to pick three because we don't want to be here until three o'clock. We only want to be here until about 2.15 today. So we, I only picked three. And those three areas where we need to be more self-aware are in the areas of our ambition, our restraint, and our contentment. So I want to talk about holy ambition, holy restraint, and holy contentment. And I want to say this. I want to say this. You can take all the things off so they don't look ahead in the sermon. 
they'll go from not amening me to like leaving early because they read the whole thing. Holy. Everybody say holy. Holy does not mean a moral life. Morality means that. Holy does not mean an ethical life. Ethics means that. Holy means a life where your life makes other people's lives better. That's what holiness is. When lepers touch Jesus, Jesus does not get infected with leprosy. The lepers get infected with healing because Jesus is holy. In the Old Testament, you had to move away from people who were sick so that you could remain holy. But in the gospel, we go after people. Who, you know a proverb that says bad company ruins good morals? Not in the gospel anymore, it doesn't. Our company fixes their morals because we're holy. So we need to be thrusting ourselves into the life of the world because when people are done hanging out with you, please, if you forget everything I say, shame on you. No, if you forget everything I say, don't forget this. When people are done hanging out with a Christian, and sadly, this is not the case, but it will be here. When people are done hanging out with a Christian from Salem Tabernacle, they should realize that in their time with us, they've been finally introduced to their best self for the first time. We should be helping people be reacquainted or maybe first time acquainted with their absolute best self. We don't need to be pointer-outers of everybody's worst self. We need to be calling out of the tomb everybody's best self and then saying, loose that self and let it go. Let it be who they really are. We should be people who, like in Genesis 1, when we're with people, in our heart, in our soul, in our bones, we're saying, let there be, and new creation is happening in somebody's life. When we're done hanging out with people, they should realize how good they are. That's what holiness is. Holiness is when your goodness calls out of the tomb somebody else's goodness. That's what holiness is. It's more transcendent than good behavior. It's more transcendent than ethics. It goes infinitely far beyond those things. A church that is merely moral is way too small. Holiness is what we're looking for. We need to be a people that, whether others come in here or we go out there, they're introduced to their best self. So these three realities, holy ambition, holy restraint, holy contentment, they are how, if we get this right, we can help people be introduced to their best self. So we will begin with holy ambition, which combats spiritual fatigue brought on by blessings or disappointment. Some of us are spiritually exhausted, and it's generally speaking for two reasons, because we have so many blessings, which means we have so many worries, so many reasons to stay up at night, so many things occupying our mind so that love of neighbor is like 10th on the priority list. I'm going to read the full quote at the end of the sermon, but one of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says is that possessions, while good and can be used for the good, create worry for tomorrow. And listen, if you're a parent, I mean, you know right off the bat, you're, you worry about your kids. If you love them, you worry about them. None of this nonsense like, well, we're Christians, we don't worry. You, know, you don't love your kids then. It's a dangerous world. My daughter's five, and she's heard things already that she should not have heard until she's 15 or 16. It's dangerous, and we should be worried. 
possessions, blessings, worry us, occupy us. They have to. They should. But we also have to contend with them because if we're really honest, so much of our overwork, so much of our overthought, and so much of our self-preservation is really the maintenance of trying to keep our blessings in our life. And there's a point where you might sit back and just be like, I have too much stuff. How do you know if you have too much stuff, you have too much worry? You have too many things occupying your mind than the cheerful life offering that Jesus is asking us to go out into all the world. We're, we're all kind of the rich young ruler who always walks away sorrowful. Right? Nobody said he didn't sell all that he had. That assumption is the Bible's way of showing us how accusatory we are. I don't know if you know that story. I hope you do know that story where the rich young ruler said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, go sell all that you have. And it says he walked away sorrowful. And every single sermon I have ever heard on this topic assumes that he didn't go sell all that he had. It just says he was upset about it. It doesn't say he didn't. Our accusatory spirit says he didn't. And why do we accuse him? We want to get on him so we could ignore the fact that Jesus is saying the same darn thing to us every single day. but it can cause spiritual fatigue. I can be tired. I am tired from trying to maintain all the wonderful things God gave me. So I need a boost of holy ambition or disappointment. Disappointment can create spiritual fatigue. Disappointment yourself, number one. I tried, I failed. I tried, I failed. I tried, I failed. I'm not trying anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of doing this. It's the crowd that comes to John, and the crowd says, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Holy ambition is about looking at your life and all of its goodness. And I don't just mean possessions. I also mean your talents and abilities. And always being motivated and cheerful to say, what can I do with these today to make somebody else's life better with them? If we're not doing that, it's just gonna, we're going to feel spiritually lazy after a while. So holy ambition to combat spiritual fatigue. This is such an exciting sermon. This is great. Everybody loves this. It's awesome. New year, new me. Pound them into submission with a sermon about offering their lives. It's true, though. Like, we have to be self-aware. And I had to be self-aware enough to say, we just need to talk about this stuff. We need to hear it. You need to hear it at home. Holy restraint to combat indulgence brought on by guilt or a sense of deserving. This is kind of funny, but also not. Holy restraint to combat indulgence that's brought on by guilt or a sense of deserving. Guilt is like, I'm bad anyway, so I might as well just keep eating this delicious Christmas cookies. Because I already had 15. I'm already a dirtbag for eating my daughter's entire pack of Christmas cookies. So I'll just eat her other one now. <laughs> like guilt, guilt can cause us to keep indulging because we give up because we feel ashamed. Shame makes you do the thing that caused you to be ashamed again. When we feel ashamed, we do it again. 
You're, you're, you make a resolution. We're going to be respectful to each other this year. I laugh. We're not going to say anything rude in our house. Our house is going to be fresh air, clean oxygen. Day one, you say something dumb to your spouse. And right away, you say three more dumb things. Why? Because guilt made you say this pointless anyway. So just say it. But the reality is, you ready? Sin does not begin the first time you mess up. Sin begins the minute you accept that first mess up and say, I'm going to do it again because I'm never going to get it right anyway. That's sinful. Your life, your home, your relationships would change today if you realized the minute you made a mistake, if right there you were self-aware enough to say, that one's on me, we're not going to do this again. Yes, there might be some ripples in the water, but it'll be ripples in the water, not like a tsunami in the water. If we grabbed hold of our second actions, the first action's always a mess up. If we grabbed hold of our second actions, we could change the ethos of our home. If we would just say, I know I made a mistake, but I am determined right now in the middle of feeling embarrassed by it to not make it a second time, things would change right away. The air would get cleaner. The air would get cleaner. everybody's worried about pollution. I'm very concerned about word pollution in our homes. The way that we think, the things that we say, and how dirty that air could get sometimes. The way we pollute our bodies, the way we pollute our mind. We look at things we shouldn't look at. We indulge in things we shouldn't indulge in. We say things we shouldn't say, and then the shame of those things says, well, I'm gonna, by the time you realize what's happening, you've done it three or four times. Self-awareness realizes right away I've made a mistake and is immediately joyful that there is a Savior right there to give you everything you need to not make it a second time. And that changes everything. We discipline Sophia more when she rebels against the discipline, not for the first thing she did to get discipline. This is actually a very important point. The world doubles down. I'm going to hang out on this point for a second. The world doubles down on all of us, not when we make the first mistake, but when we rebel against the consequences of the first mistake. You drive, you speed, you get pulled over, you get a ticket. You drive, you speed, you get pulled over, and you decide to evade the pullover, you get arrested and you go to jail. The world doubles down, not when we make the mistake, but when we begin to rebel against the consequence of the mistake. That's when things get, go from bad to really, really detrimentally bad. And so we need to teach our kids not so much never make a mistake because that's an impossible lesson to teach them and setting them up for failure. But what we need to do is teach them to appreciate the grace that comes when initial consequences roll in. You say something you shouldn't say. You see the look on your friend or your spouse's or your child's face. Right away you feel like I shouldn't have said that. That moment is grace. That moment is grace. It's not guilt. It's not God pointing the finger. It's saying, see, your words matter to them. If they hated you, they wouldn't care what you just said. But the fact that it made them upset, they care about you. Now, that moment where you saw their upsetness, don't double down and say worse things because now you feel convicted. Stop. Appreciate the fact that people care about what you say and realize there's grace in that initial consequence. And don't make the same mistake a second time. Okay. But has anybody made, <laughs> indulged in something because you think you deserve it and no one else sees you? Like, no one knows how hard I work 
so I'm going to eat whatever I want tonight because I bust my behind all day long and nobody cares anyway, so I'm going to reward myself. That could be as dangerous as indulging in something because you feel guilty, this personalized sense that you can reward yourself for stuff because other people aren't, and then you indulge in those same things because you think you deserve it, and you end up in the same place as the person who indulges in stuff because they think they don't deserve anything. I'm always going to get it wrong. Might as well indulge. I've been getting it right for a long time. Might as well indulge, and we all end up in the same place, spiritually obese, tired, and hangry, and spiritual diabetics because we just only offer ourselves sugar both naturally and spiritually and can't understand why we get tired spiritually. And then finally, holy contentment to combat fantasy thinking brought on by either ignorance or vending information. Everybody write down this phrase, vending, vending. Write down the phrase, vending. Does anybody remember vending machines? They are glorious. When I worked at Allstate Insurance Company, they finally downstairs in the lobby, made the vending machine have a credit card swipe. I was like, Jesus, you didn't have to, but you did. You made a way. And what would happen is, I would sit down to work, and I'd be banging out the to-do list, negotiating claims, doing everything, like just killing the day. And then a task would come along, and here's what I would know. Stuart, you'll appreciate this. I have to call a claimant who's in one of our company's rental cars. Pastor, why are you talking about this? Watch. Just think vending machine. (laughs) Just think vending machine. I got to call this claimant who's been in one of our rental cars for 10 days. Okay. I look on the bill from their mechanic, and it says that the mechanic should have only taken two days. We're paying for their rental car now for 10 or 11 days. So now I got to call the mechanic and be like, why haven't you fixed this car yet? Mechanics don't like those calls. They yell at people like me when we call them to tell them that. So now I got to call the claimant and be like, hey, remember I offered you one of our mechanics and you said, no, yours is really good, and now yours can't fix a car? Well, now we can't keep paying for your rental because he is taking his time and we're just not going to you know, let you be in a rental for the entirety of the year. And now I'm getting yelled at by everybody. So I say all that to say, when I see that task come across my computer and I know all those things are about to happen, I go to the vending machine. (laughs) I take my credit card and I march myself right on down to the vending machine because I need probably them little packs of Cheez-Its that you eat in like two swipes and E5, and then I need a Butterfinger, D4, and now I need something to wash it down with, Mountain Dew, R1, and here we are. And I'm going to go back upstairs and I'm going to handle business. Ignorance. Just being ignorant of the fact that you really just vended out of stress. It's just a quick turn away from reality, a quick indulging of something easy to get, which is never healthy, ever, and then we think we'll go right back to reality. It's we vend the way I vend on a vending machine, We vend on information this way. We're stressed in our day. Our day isn't going so good. Things are going crazy. We pop open that phone. We scroll three or four things. We look at a post. We look at an article. We look at an email. We look at things that are on social media. We go right back to work, and we don't know what just happened. We just told our brain 
that you can get something right away if you want it. Do you know why the Bible doesn't have pictures in it? Because God knows that the part of us he wants to transform the most is the part of us where if we saw images, we would skip over that part of us that needs to be transformed. There's something about needing to read words and process them yourself and not be fed videos or images that gets to the part of you that God wants to transform. But when we teach ourselves to vend on information that's instantaneously available, answers instantaneously given, pictures and videos right away, they could be holistic. They could even be Christian ones. But when it's coming at you right away and sense is being made for you right away and you're gobbling it up right away, even if it's good, which most of the time it's not, but even if it is good and you're just indulging in those quick answers given, it's, it's fast food and it makes us very unhealthy. Because now we turn and we go back to life and we expect now, whether we like it or not, but if we have self-awareness, we'll admit that this is the case, we go back to life and we want the rest of our day to work out the same way our phone just did. When I want it, I got it. And I got exactly what I was looking for. And we look at our family, our boss, our coworkers, the people who work under us, our friends and family, our children, and we want them to work as quickly as our phone worked. And we develop fantasy thinking from indulging in vending information. Information like a vending machine. Quick, painless, forgot about it 20 minutes later, but it has affected you for the rest of the day. Or ignorance, having no real estate in your life for other people's voices, but only your own. Holy ambition is what we need to pray for, but we need to move some stuff out of our life. Holy restraint is what we need to pray for. If we want to have a successful year as people, we need to realize that no is a freedom word. And when you can't say no, you're enslaved to something. And holy contentment, being able to look at exactly what I have right now today, January 2nd, 2022, what I have, the house I have, the clothes I have, the family, everything that I have right now, looking at it and realizing there is more goodness in what I have today than I'll ever be able to mine out for the rest of my entire life. There is more God to be found in the room I'm looking at right now than I will ever have time for for the rest of my entire life. When I got up here this morning and said, can you believe that we still get to come to church and if we can't, we still get to come to church via those cameras. It is so unbelievable that God has sustained not just us, but so many churches this way. So many churches stayed open that we thought would have closed in two seconds. So many stayed open. The goodness of God is so deeply around us that we, if, we, if we looked for it every single day, one day's worth of his goodness would be a lifetime in trying to say thank you, just like that song said that Stephanie sang today. Wouldn't be able to if I tried. And yet we wake up most of the time saying, I need something else. I need something else to stabilize me. I need something else to make me feel good. I need something else to make me feel comfortable. If it was just a little cleaner, if it was just a little bit more organized, if it was just a little nicer, if I just had that one more friend, if I was just married, if I just wasn't married, whatever it is, Whatever it is, 
It is not that cold in here. It is not that cold in here. I, I, I do. I, do the, I, I tolerate people covering their face because it's 68 degrees. You know what? Let me just say something about this real fast since the ADD just kicked off. Not just you because whatever, but just because I know you can handle it. Go to somebody's Facebook and look what they do outside when the weather is 68 degrees. Look at my New York. Look at the colors. Look at Vermont. I'm so happy to be out here. This is amazing. Then bring them into the church and make it 68 degrees and they're dying of frostbite. It's the fall in here. Everyone get over it. Well, when you're outside, you're moving. Well, if you were worshiping, you should be hot right now. So to our first fruit offering. (laughs) Everybody close your eyes. We're not putting this on the screen. I want you to hear this quote. I read it this morning. Hot off the press. Possessions delude the human heart into believing that they provide security and a worry-free existence. But in truth... Possessions are the very cause of worry. For the heart that is fixed on possessions, they come with a suffocating burden of worry. Worries lead to treasure, and treasure leads back to worry. We want to secure our lives through possessions. Through worry, we want to become worry-free. But the truth turns out to be the opposite. The shackles that bind us to possessions, that hold us fast to possessions, are themselves worries. The misuse of possessions consists in our using them for security for the next day. Worry is always directed toward tomorrow. In the strictest sense, however, possessions are intended only for today. It is precisely the securing of tomorrow that makes me so insecure today. After all, Jesus said, today's trouble is enough for today. Only those who place tomorrow in God's hands and receive what they need to live today are truly secure. Receiving daily liberates us from tomorrow. Thought for tomorrow delivers us up to endless worry. The great Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote that in a concentration camp with all of his possessions finally taken from him. So, every year, I wonder if I'm going to talk about this because I never do something because it's traditional. I only do something if there's a reason. We're sitting here talking about clearing out space to be more self-aware, and it is obvious to all of us that possessions and materialism are what drive us into the most angry we will ever be, and the most disappointed we will ever be, and the most accusatory we will ever be. And you sit there and say, well, no. Materialism isn't my issue. How I feel about myself is the issue. Everybody just squeeze your cheek right now. Squeeze it. Give it a a little tug, your cheek. You're material. (laughs) So if you're constantly worried about yourself, it's materialism. Our emotions are physical, they're not metaphysical, despite what anybody will ever tell you. If anybody says your emotions are not physical, they are 100% scientifically wrong. 
Your emotions are as physical as your shin bone is. They happen in your mind. Your body sends chemicals and signals throughout your body. It's physical. An emotional issue is a physical issue. It says in one of the Psalms, walk around Zion, look at her citadels, look at her stones, look at how beautiful she is. And then Peter, knowing the Psalms, one day walks out of the temple and says to Jesus, look at those stones, how beautiful are they? And Jesus says, every one of them is going to be thrown down. And then Peter himself will later write, we are precious stones being built into a holy habitation for God. So do you see what happened there? Psalms says, look at the stones of the temple. Peter tried to look at the stones of the temple. Jesus said, stop looking at the stones of the temple. You're a stone that I'm concerned with. Because overvaluing materialism is undervaluing the humanity of the person next to you. It's not just like when we say we're materialistic, it's not just that we have a lust for more. It's also that we have a lack of self-awareness to the value of the human next to us. When we overvalue the material world, the obvious materialisms, we undervalue the material of the person next to us. Jesus doesn't want Peter looking at beautiful stones because Jesus wants Peter to know he is one. He is a beautiful stone. So how do we remove materialism is what Jesus says. We offer some of our material to the Lord, to the poor. So this is why we do a first fruit offering every year. It's not because we're looking for money. We're good. It's truly because I can stand here before all of you and say, with as much integrity as I can muster up, it is truly because I believe that when we offer our money, we're offering our time, we're offering our talent, and we're offering our treasure, it is an act of saying to God at the beginning of the year, you are my security, and my talents, time, and abilities are not. And so here's what I'm saying to you, and I want you to hear me, take me at face value right now. Take me at face value. Do not read into what I'm about to say. If you feel the Spirit impressing upon you right now that your life will get better, that you can move some toxic furniture out of the way by giving a first fruit offering on the fourth Sunday of this month, then I want you to do it. If you really believe that there's something for you here, if you don't, then this year is probably not the year for you to give in it. And I mean that with all sincerity. I mean that with all sincerity. I, I don't ever want to tell people what to do with money. I want to offer opportunities. This is something that I've done. I don't look for more money when I give a first fruit offering. I look for a better me because I've pushed some stuff out of the way because it hurts, because I, I offer something that I really want to have. After a very expensive month, it's not fun to give a first fruit offering. After a very expensive month of buying a whole bunch of stuff, it's not that easy to give a first fruit offering. It helps me, and I'm excited about it. And here's the thing. I get excited about it because I know my heart is pathetic, and I know that anything that I can do can help, but I only want this to happen for people who feel the Spirit telling them to. And if you've given in this offering every single year, you, please, please hear me. God may tell you for two or three years not to. Because for you, not doing it might rattle more things around in you than doing it will. Because some of us have never been taught to give a first fruit offering before, and it's kind of interesting, it's kind of exciting. Giving God the first, the first portion of our time, our talent, and our treasure for the year, that's a good thing to do. Other people in this room, you, you've just been doing it out of obligation, and maybe it'll actually be harder for you not to give one. 
And there's some things in you that you'll have to work through by not giving in it that are going to be just as healthy as somebody who is giving in it. I want that to happen. This isn't about the money. This is about realizing that when we push some materialism out of the way, we make a little bit more room for the Lord. What did Hadley say in the amazing, what now should be a chapter in the Bible Christmas song that she wrote? I, I go into my room and I take things out of my room to make room for love. I go into my room, I take things out of my room to make room for love. She used the word room three times in a very dope fashion. <laughs> and it makes so much sense. So if you feel that this is going to help make room, please join me in it. If you feel that maybe, if right now you're saying, I'm going to because if I don't, something bad's going to happen, I'm telling you as your pastor, don't give this year. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because I want you to deny the thing that told you that because that thing is a liar and I want you to see at the end of this year if you didn't give in it that you're still okay. I can't tell if the room is looking at me like they're annoyed, impressed, crazy or what. This is a, this is a fun moment to stand in here, tell you that much. I can see some of your faces. Some of you are masked up, probably growling at me. I like the masks for that reason. Cursing me out. Like when we were kids and we used to put the orange in our mouth and say like mean things with the orange. Don't know what I just said. You've been doing this to me right now under the mask. I see it. The Lord's telling me everything you're saying behind that mask. Thank you to some of you and to others, I'm rubber and you're glue. <laughs> Will this work? <laughs> I'm all grown up. <laughs> Will this work? What did Courtney read at the very end? He comes to us in grace and truth. Grace, you heard me say this on the video, grace is flexibility. Here's the thing. Genesis 2. And God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man and the woman whom he had formed. Do you realize what you just read when you read that? Let there be light, boom, and there's light. Let there be grass, boom, and there's grass. Let there be a sky, boom, and there's a sky. And then when it comes to where we live, he plants. He doesn't say, let there be a garden. He plants, and he waits for growth. Because waiting and moving slow is not a sign of sin. It's a sign of God's perfection. Before the world was ever tainted, God moved slow. Slowness is not a deficiency. It is exactly perfection. God created the world in seven days. He could have created it in one, but he created it in seven to show us you don't have to do everything that needs to be done today. And then he planted a garden in Eden to show us that even God waits for things that he could make grow tomorrow. He still waits a month for it to grow before he puts us there. He's going to move slow with you this year. If you make mistakes in some of the stuff we're going to be talking about, he moves slow. He's cultivating you. He's cultivating you slowly. Do you want to know why we turn away from the Lord? We stop following Jesus, not because we turn away from him, but because we run faster than he moves. We think we stop following him because we turn away from him. But we really stop following him because we run out ahead of him. Because he's always moving slower than we're going. And most of the time we turn, it's turning back to saying, are you coming, Jesus? <laughs> Hurry up. And he's like, that space between where I am and where you are, that is your worry and anxiety. 
that space. You ran on ahead of me because you're anxious. You ran on ahead of me because you're ashamed of yourself. You ran on ahead of me because you think you're nothing but a sinful bag of bones. So I'm moving slow because I want you to see that space where you're running on ahead of me trying to resolve everything, that space is where I want all of my grace to transform you. Jesus will keep moving slow. He will not run at the pace of our anxiety. He will slow down. He won't run as fast as our guilt. He won't run as fast as our anxiety wants to. We want to fix things because we're terrified. And Jesus is just slow. Slow. Like the person who's in front of you when you're late. He's that slow. Whoever it is, it's always a slow person. Grace is, how, grace is flexibility, but grace is also the slowness of God. He's not looking for you to be fully transformed by the end of this year, just a tiny bit. A tiny bit. Truth. Seeing ourselves as we really are by seeing Jesus as he really is. Truth has become a sword word in our culture. You need to know the truth about this. You need to know the truth about that. They're not telling you everything there is for you to know. I have the truth because I watch YouTube. Truth is Jesus showing you who you really are and seeing yourself in light of who he truly is. And my job this year for you is going to be to present Jesus as he truly is the best I possibly can every single Sunday so that we could see ourselves as we really are, sinful but not needing to hide behind trees, being able to walk up to the voice following us in the garden saying, turn around and come back to me, you're running too fast. And it says in that text that we'll be born again not by the will of man, but by the will of God. That is powerful verse. Your will won't make it. How many of you sin? Raise your hand. If you sin, how many of you sin regularly? If somebody even just thought, oh, no. If you sin regularly, your will is not free. It's bound. You have free choice, but your will is all kinds of enslaved. Hang out with me for 10 minutes. I don't have a free will. I'm having a slowly becoming more free will, but it's not free. If it was free, I wouldn't make mistakes. I wouldn't do things God doesn't want me to do. I wouldn't think things he doesn't want me to think if I had a free will. So just trying hard, we're not, that's not helpful for us. We need his will to become our will slowly. And he will follow you through your mistakes this year, forgive you every step of the way, and teach you how to not do it again, and then teach you how to not do it again, and then teach you how to not do it again, and keep doing that because he's not really a good, good father. He's an absolutely perfect father. And all of his punishments are meant to correct, and they will. And his disciplines are meant to give grace, and they will. But you're never rejected, you're never left alone, and your sin cannot separate you from the love of the Father. Because when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, guess who went with them? God. The whole Bible is God being with us outside of the garden, because even when he kicks us out of places, he goes out with us. Where was he crucified? Outside the city gates. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's not just a death word. It's an everyday word. Husband and wife, mom and dad, employee, employer, friend, child. He will not leave you or forsake you is an everyday word. It's not just an end of your life word. He's going to slowly free your will this year. He's going to make us better at making decisions slowly. Let's stand to our feet this morning.
first communion meal of the year. I'm not going to say anything. By the, my New Year's resolution is by the end of the year to have you come up here once, and I don't comment on it. I'm not even asking you to hurry up because I just preached on slowness. Maybe you're teaching me something with the way you come up here. First communion of the year. Can we just close our eyes for a moment? You've heard me say it a million times. We'll eventually understand him. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. But the first person that that was ever spoken to was God speaking it to Jesus. Jesus, I will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And there we sat as his enemies around a table that God prepared for him. And Jesus looks at his enemies and says, tonight you are going to become my friends. I'm going to heal you. This meal will remind you that I'm always going to heal you. I am never not going to heal you. You are not beyond repair. I'm always going to feed you. I'm always going to take care of you. I'm always going to be there for you. And every pastor who's worth their salt is probably saying that today, but it is so important that we keep hearing it because we honestly understand it, but we don't believe it. He truly will always come to your rescue. And even when your rescue is the mess you've made of yourself, he will always come to your rescue. He will always walk slow enough for you to keep pace with him. He will always stop when you stop. He will fall down when you fall down. He will pick you back up and you'll carry the cross together just like he did with Simon. When you celebrate, he will celebrate. When you fall up, fall down and get dusty, he will fall down and get dusty right next to you and he will pick you up. This is what he's going to do every day of your life, this entire year and all the years to come. I want the taste of this bread and the taste of that juice to always be a reminder to you that every time you make a mistake, instantaneously there is the grace to not only get up, to not only learn, but to actually fall deeper in love with God in the process to come to a better understanding of who he is for you and who you are for the world. You're valuable, you're needed, you're, you're, you're more than useful, you're holy. You have value. The minute you didn't anymore, we would stop coming to the table. The spiritual shift would happen. Christ's words won't mean anything to us anymore. They mean something to us because deep down we know we're valuable. You don't deserve hell, you deserve heaven. Christ didn't come to show us that we deserve hell or else. He came to show us that we are worth the very treasure of heaven itself, which is Jesus Christ. He is the treasure of heaven. And God gave us the treasure of heaven to show us that we don't deserve hell. We deserve heaven. If you wake up tomorrow thinking you don't deserve the blessings that you have or you're a bad parent or you're not a good mom or you're not a good husband or you're just a lot or you're alone and you deserve to be alone or whatever it is, immediately I want you, immediately I want you to just utter the simple words, he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. Not about your deathbed, about waking up tomorrow morning about getting to tomorrow afternoon, about getting to tomorrow night. He will always have new mercy. 
They will be brand new every morning because we are creative and our sin is brand new every morning. So he will have new mercies waiting for us every morning. He will teach us to have holy ambition. He will teach us to have holy restraint. He will teach us to have holy contentment. You're not going to do it tomorrow. But a little bit by little bit by little bit, he's planting a garden in you. And slowly that garden's going to grow. And you're not going to become a superhero tomorrow. You're going to become more holy each and every day because he's not giving up on you. You have to believe what I'm saying. This is not some sort of TED talk of positivity. This is the truth of the gospel. He loves you, Jesus, much. <laughs> he loves you. Sophia says, do you love me 10 much? Do you love me 50? He loves you, Jesus, much. That's how much he loves you. Nothing, nor height, nor depth, nor famine, nor sword, nor anything in all of creation can ever separate you from that love. And that's why you will heal. And that's why you'll make it through whatever it is you're going through right now. That's why you'll make it through the way you view yourself, the way you think about yourself. Too much some days, too little other days. You'll make it through all of it because he will never give up on you. He is annoying and he will never give up on you. He will keep on showing up, even when we don't invite him. We run past him, and all of a sudden, he's in front of us. How'd that happen? Well, I'm Alpha and Omega. Sorry, you can't get away from me. Let this meal truly not be something we do when we know we're leaving church. <laughs> Let this meal be something that we partake of to remind ourselves that he is feeding us and that you can feed somebody tomorrow with the goodness in you. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took bread looked at all of his enemies and said, this is my body, which is given for you. You're invited to come as often as you want. And every time you do, eat this in remembrance of me. And after, and after supper, he took his large, gigantic chalice of wine. And he said, my blood is going to be spilled tonight. But it's being spilled for you because the covenant you're under right now can't make you friends. It can point out that your enemies but it can't make you friends. So this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. You're invited to come often. And every time you do, drink this in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Holy Spirit, descend on this bread and this cup and all of these people. Make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we might truly know who we really are, that we don't have to wake up tomorrow feeling like if somebody comes knocking on the door of our life, we have nothing to offer. We're bread for the world because you're bread for the world. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.